Hi, this is Jim Cook, the brewer and founder of Samuel Adams, and you're listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future. October 24th, 2023. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Autumn Chip Hessenfly. <laughs> Still Autumn. Still Autumn. It's October. It's good for you. We're just a couple of guys sitting around talking about things that are important to us. Hopefully they're important to you. If you need more information, there's so many great ways to find more information. You know the easiest way to find more information, Chip, is to stay at my house for the weekend. Well, you know, that's one way of doing it. <laughs> That's one way. We would like to thank um, the chip shortage for still being around you're from tall. COVID. You're tall enough, Chip. You, you are not a chip shortage. I've been using that joke all weekend, too. So, yes, you had a, a, an automobile issue, your car, and so you were, you were stranded here in the studio all weekend. Yeah, and the, and the issue was still the, the chip shortage mm-hmm. because they looked all over the United States for this particular part, and it's not there. Yeah. And uh, we would like to thank the uh, the New Yorker from the Acura dealership a long, long way away for saying, eh, these parts don't go bad very often. Just your, go to eBay. That's your New York accent. <laughs> That's good. We would also like to thank John Streets for uh, hosting the Streets Arts Alliance. We went and had some fun at the Dark Arts Market this weekend because because you were here. And we got to see a lot of witches, Steve. Which one? <laughs> Film at 11. Brings us to our film at 11, our movie of the week. Oh, Chip, my friend. Here's what happens. You spend the weekend at my house. You are going to watch one of the worst movies of all time. I sat you down to watch Manos, The Hands of Fate. Well, it is the holiday season, Steve. And that means there's a lot of torture out there. And so somebody has to watch this film. 1966, Manos, The Hands of Fate, voted so many times as one of the worst films of all time, and uh, you wanted to watch it without the Mystery Science Theater riff. I did. I wanted to watch this film with a fresh set of eyes, Steve. Now, we're doing a little foreshadowing, because there will be an extended discussion about this film, but I'm going to bring up a few things uh, that I noticed when watching this film. Okay. Um... It certainly was of its time. I mean, from the the 1960s. We got to listen to um, a meandering story where a father does not listen. I shouldn't say father. Let's call him a husband. A man does not listen. He gets lost driving, Steve, and he puts everybody (laughs) into danger because he could ask for directions, Steve. But why do that? And uh, there's always a bunch of kids out making out. Uh, in the uh, desert at somewhere. This this film takes place in El Paso, Texas. Mm-hmm. Uh, and El Paso is part of this, even though they, I don't think they even mentioned that part. The, the sheriff's automobile says El Paso, Texas on it. And we are clearly in, is clearly set in El Paso, Texas. But although that's not really figured into the story. And if you're macking out in the uh, <laughs> desert, they just tell you to go on home. They don't want to... They don't want to disrupt you that much. How many times? Four times? In Something the, like in that. In the hour-long movie? This movie is 75 minutes long, and it is a slog to get through without the riff. 
Yeah, I, and I think it was. I mean, it's it's an independent film. Mm-hmm. Very. I, I think the director and the writer felt that they could make movies, like everyone else could make a movie. Harold Warren, the guy who put this together, decided he could make a movie. He was a fertilizer salesman who decided movies are fun. I can make a movie. Well, that's not. There's there's no problem with it so far. So far, um, UTEP, University of Texas El Paso, the university. Probably they probably had some. Uh, they probably had a theater program. Uh, I'm guessing. I don't know if that's the case, but somebody had to design the the outfits that they were wearing. Certainly, once again, sort of very 60s out there. Yes. Somebody had to make the music. It was like there was this avant garde jazz mm-hmm. that was going on through it. So there was a jazz musician. I looked up the jazz musician. And I don't see that he had any other recorded music. Interesting. But it certainly was, I I say it was of that time, I don't know, somewhere in the 50s and the 60s, we're going to take a little trip with my jazz uh, music. And then we get Torgo's theme. Torgo's haunting theme of Torgo (laughs) struggling to walk, struggling to pick up the suitcases, and that theme of that jazz music that sort of fits and there's also somebody was the set artist so there are these um candlesticks and things that are burning and stuff like that they have a they have a unique look Mm -hmm. so once again it's it's of its time you know there is a story it's not a strong story Mm -hmm. it certainly was a, a a family going out Getting lost in an area, running into a very weird man. I don't know. I, is half it, goat, half human, uh, on uh, drugs maybe. Well, had multiple wives. Oh, and- you're talking about the master. I'm talking about Torgo. Torgo's the weird man that he that they meet first, and then they finally meet the master. Well, decisions were made on costuming, mm-hmm. and and they, and we weren't really clear on where that would be. Um, but you know, it, it just is a movie and it, it was, it was lost forever. So it had 27 years. It had maybe a couple performances. It certainly was not, uh, received well with the local theater mm-hmm. doing the presentation. It didn't go beyond that. Somebody found it and it became ripe for. Mystery Science Theater 3000. Absolutely. I love that you know that much background of this movie. I have studied this movie so much. I know so much background. I have spoken to Jackie Naaman Jones, who is going to be our special guest for our Book It segment coming up. And she is the little girl from this movie. She has made a life around the filming of this. This is her home video of her family. Her father was the master, and this was such a part of her life I, I look forward to talking to her in that segment yeah we'll expand this uh, discussion uh, anyway I, we, I got to see it let's just go ahead and check that box off is that <laughs> i've walked through hell with you steve 20 minutes in chip turns to me and goes is something going to happen and my response is nope <laughs> This is Manos, the hands of fate. Every line is repeated. No matter what the line is, somebody says it twice. 
there could have been some strong editing, but it was 75 minutes. I don't know how much they could have edited down and still called it a movie. Well, you're also dealing with film versus with what we have today. And the idea of not being able to review your film until it's developed Mm -hmm. certainly probably created some editing challenges. And you just can't bring everybody back together. It's cost prohibitive. Right. You decided to watch this unrift, so we found a copy of it on Tubi, which is one of the fast services, the free ad-supported television services that are out there. There's some great stuff being done on that tier. Well, you know what? The beauty of it is it woke me up when the ads came on, Steve. It did indeed. You were tired. To be fair, you were tired when we were watching this movie. But 30 minutes in, yes, Chip lost a part of the story and got completely confused at that point. Didn't know what was going on in Mouse. Well, a lot of people don't know what's going on in this film, Steve. <laughs> this... I hate love this movie so much. I have seen this movie so many times. It's been riffed by Mystery Science Theater 3000, Riff Tracks, and then a live version of Riff Tracks. I've talked to Jackie Naaman Jones before with Joel. I have that in the show notes as well. Uh, I am so glad that you watched this film. <laughs> We also watched a a much better horror movie while you were here this weekend. Werewolf by Night in Color was released to Disney Plus this week. So this was released last year by, it's it's the MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe. It was one of the Disney uh, shorts, um, and it was featuring uh, Werewolf by Night. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ultimately, it it features Man-Thing, which is another character. And a lot of other characters that may or may not be part of the Marvel Universe doesn't really matter. But it's a, it's a short. And I really... So last year, it was presented as a black and white feature. Mm-hmm. This year, they gave it that 70s, 60s color look. Maybe the Manos look. Maybe. Maybe somewhere around there. A little there. bit. But, so it, it still has a dated look to it. Right. But it's color this year. Because, you know, some young people don't watch black and white. And that is and that is a conversation I've had with my students many times. I love the black and white genre. I love the, the way that lighting can be used to give shape to black and white. Kids, they hate black and white. They think that that dates that material so much. Well, for young people who um, you know are not aware of this, life was black and white before... <laughs> before uh, they colorized. Before, before, before you know... Before Turner. <laughs> before... <laughs> Before today, you know, it's, it's color. Then before their life. Before Ted Turner came around and colorized our day. That's when you looked at all those pictures back in the old days, right? <laughs> but anyway, um, you know, if you're watching a Universal's movie, a Universal Pictures movie, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy or something, you're looking at it in black and white or that crazy Ted Turner um uh, colorized version that they probably created too. Where they colored in everything but the people's mouths because there was too too tight a, a color to color in. Well, uh, this took the same approach. And I think that was a brilliant decision to release it initially in black and white because it certainly had a period piece It is to a it. 1930s period piece, a throwback to that era. And then this year to reintroduce it, but as a colorized version. So my assumption is you can watch both versions. Correct. On. Instead of making another special, instead of making a 2023 special with a new story, they just took this same thing from last year and re-released it in color. I think it loses something in the color presentation. I I did not enjoy it nearly as much. 
It may, but this is a much stronger piece than many of the other Disney uh, Marvel shows. Mm-hmm. In fact, I would say it doesn't really matter. Star Wars, Disney, however you wanted to describe their um, experience of putting together a season, you know, eight to ten shows where it's really just a lot of filler with a very short show. This is much tighter. 55 and th- minutes. And this is a, th- well, I mean, it's not just tighter. You get your story Beginning, down. middle, and end in one shot instead of spreading it out over six, seven, eight hours of story. And the uh, the idea of a streaming service is that we were supposed to have freedom of storytelling. Mm-hmm. You know, something may be worth 55 uh, minutes. Sure. Something could be worth, you know, two or three shows. Something could be worth five. But we've got this idea that it has to be stretched out. And what we end up getting is what may have been a very strong story, you know, just so fluffed up, there's just not a lot there. I mean, would She-Hulk have been a better series with only one or two episodes versus having, you know, whatever they had, 10 episodes. Would Hawkeye been stronger um, and a shorter series? And you remember we had um, Boba Fett that they eventually, they just knew it was not working out. They ended up taking Mandalorian episodes and then shoehorning them into this because they, they wanted a certain number of uh, episodes. From a certain point of view. From, and it just it just seems to yeah this is this is a failing this is a failing of understanding the freedom that something could could work I agree I, I think that the Obi Wan movie would have been better than the Obi Wan series and and what we're seeing is they're playing with the timelines on all these things the Obi Wan series was a movie and then eh, we could we could stretch it out and get the dollars from the subscription if we put it out for two months instead so if you are wanting a Halloween show Mm -hmm. and you have a subscription to disney plus this is a great halloween show and you know it's spooky enough Mm -hmm. um it is not so juvenile like going to disney parks going through the not too scary but you know there's enough suspense to it it's very much in the spirit of a universal picture where you have frankenstein or dracula that today's audience would not find you know overly scary but certainly enthralling there's gore to this and that's where i really don't like the color version of this the blood that is splattered in this when it's black and white i go oh look there's splatter when it's red i go that's gore and i don't want that i think they did casting very well with this i think the uh the music the director is a musician by trade that's right he is an academy award-winning composer and this is his directorial debut and i think he did a fantastic job directing and i think we need more of these shorts um, you know, you're filming a movie. Why don't we use some of those characters and have a short playing on the side that, you know, maybe you get a little more insight to the character or something. You know, it's 30 minutes. It's 45 minutes. You, you don't, ha- you can create strong stories where I can watch a bunch of strong stories. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to slog through eight, an eight hour movie. And isn't that what comic books did was you have one issue of a comic book. You have a story. If you want to continue, there's a much longer story that you can continue reading those comic books. Uh, this is a great way to use these characters. Maybe at one time. Now they're sure. like, they, they're trying to create these books. It doesn't really matter. This is, um, this is a lot of fun. And for a family, I would, I would highly suggest it. Even for just an adult watching something, 
you, you do not have to have any previous experience with any of these characters to enjoy somebody like that. Book it, book it, book it. Book it, book it, book it. Book it. Book it. Brings us to our book it, our book of the week. You know, you know, Steve, we spent some time watching a movie to prepare for this. I mean, it is the holidays, the Halloween season, spooky season, time to watch some scary movies. But I don't think I have enough information. Do you think that we could bring in an author to talk about the movie we saw this I week? I am so happy today, Chip. I am so happy to introduce you to one of the friends of our show, Jackie Naaman Jones, Little Debbie from Manos, The Hands of Fate. Good morning, Jackie. Good morning. Nice to be here. It's kind of early for me. I'm I'm a West Coast, and I'm like, okay, you got to get up. Let's get. This is good. I I could make this a habit. So what we should do is say that um, you wrote this book, and I'm sorry, it was published in 2016. Yeah, this is called Growing Up with Manos, The Hands of Fate, How I Was the Child Star of the Worst Movie Ever Made and Lived to Tell the Story. <laughs> That's it. That's my book. <laughs> and the reason why we have you on now in 2023 is there's an audiobook format that is being released on Halloween next Tuesday. Your book is going to be available to us audiobook listeners. Yes, it is. And I read it. And uh, Chris Gerbich, who runs Dumb Industries, that produces the Mazerback and Mary Jo Peel show, he recorded it with me and uh, edited it. Wonderful. So, uh, it'll be out on Halloween. So in the title of the book, you describe Manos as the worst movie ever made. Chip got the opportunity, and I say opportunity, to see Manos, The Hands of Fate yesterday. Chip, is this the worst movie ever made? This is not the worst movie ever made, Steve. That's hyperbole right there. Okay. Jackie, is this the worst movie ever made? Oh, God, no. I was in a movie much worse than Manos in high school. Only seven seconds of The Curse of Bigfoot, but that movie is way worse than Manos. And and there's numerous movies worse than Manos. So Manos is, is the worst movie more in a loving way. I I absolutely agree with that. I have seen Manos so many times. I love what was put on film, what was made here, your family, your home movies, your memories of 1966 making this movie. Yeah. In fact, I was just approached by some, some folks and uh, we're making a plan right now that they are playwrights and they, the husband and wife team, they read my book and uh, they're very talented people that have created a number of uh, productions and they're looking for the adaptation rights to my book to turn it into uh, a play. So we, we should start off, when I was watching this film, I felt it was almost like a Twilight Zone episode. You know, we've got a mom and dad and daughter, they're heading off. Dad, of course, is not going to listen to anybody about getting uh, directions, and they get um, lost uh, on an old uh, highway down towards El Paso. I wouldn't call that a highway. I would say that that was barely even a road. Well, a back road. (laughs) A back road. 
So what was it like to, do you remember filming this? Oh, yeah. As a kid, I, I was always such an observant kid, and I just adored my dad. And uh, my mother was actually a teacher, and my dad did social work. He was executive director of the local El Paso Boys Club, but he was very heavily involved in theater, and he had a rock house studio in our backyard. And I just spent every opportunity I could hanging out with him. And uh, so when I had this opportunity to be in the film, I was a shy kid. I didn't do it because I, I wanted to be in the film. I just would have taped myself to his back if I could have. Mm -hmm. So I absorbed every bit of it. Fortunately, all those years later, when I decided to write the book, there were still a few people still living that I could interview and people I could find. And my memories were sharp. And uh, I'm just so grateful that I got it into a book format. And I am very proud to say that it's four and a half stars on Amazon. So it's a, it's a really good book about a really bad movie. It seems to, there seems to be a lot of celebration of things that, you know, you go into it, you, you don't in, have intentions of creating something that is... Um, I don't know, challenged. Uh, but, you know, it, you, you put it together and you, you do the best you can. And, and obviously uh, it played the way it did. It was kind of lost for a long period of time, wasn't it? 27 years, which is another reason my memories were so sharp. Because at the premiere on November 15th, 1966, I mean, it was a really big production premiere. Hal Warren really knew he was a salesman he really knew how to get things to happen obviously he got the film finished he talked to everybody into sticking with it and um but it was so bad at the premiere that the theater canceled the rest of the two-week run they had planned for it and as soon as it was over everybody just escaped the theater because i mean i don't even i think I don't even think anybody went to the cast party afterwards. Oh, wow. I mean, it was pretty humiliating. And uh, and my dad was a very uh, well-known actor in El Paso in the theater. He, he, in fact, won Best Actor of the Year Award in 1966 for playing the role of uh, Henry IV in the play Henry IV. So... You know, it was just this experience everybody wanted to forget about. But me as a kid, it, I don't know, over the years, it just grew into it was the greatest summer of my life. You know, just being the only kid, you know, a lot of it was filmed. It was nights and weekends because everybody had day jobs. And so my dad was my ride out to where we were filming. And uh, I had no supervision. So as a six-year-old kid, getting to explore and poke into everything out in the desert at night. And uh, you and the dog might be creepy, creepy to some people, you know, snakes, scorpions, you know, that sort of thing. But I just, I loved it. In, in your research of this movie, um, it, it's obviously they spent a lot of uh, effort on kind of stylized clothing, stylized sets, the art, the, the, the music of it. Can you speak mm -hmm. to anything about the costuming of, of this uh, of this movie? 
Yeah, uh, all of that was put on my dad because he was an artist. And my mother was a very good seamstress. She made most of my clothing. Anything we didn't buy at Sears and Roebuck, she made. Uh, she made the Debbie dress I wore in the film. Uh, but my dad did, he created all the props. Uh, Torgo's costume, in fact, came from his closet. Those were my dad's welding coveralls. Nice. And that was his desert scavenging hat. And uh, the leg braces were some old uh, fence wiring uh, that was made into a circular to fit the inside of the legs and vent. So, you know, people say, oh, there's all kinds of rumors that John Reynolds, who played Torgo, became addicted to drugs and then killed himself because it was so painful to walk like that. Well, the whole thing was shot like in eight days, so that's not really enough time. And it was uncomfortable, but it wasn't particularly painful because they were lined with um, with foam, you know, something soft. The master's robe, um, my dad designed it, my parents designed it, and I still remember them laying that fabric out on the living room floor and, and laying the hands on top. And I just remember how amazing that was to me it was it was great and mom also made the wives dresses but it all came out of my parents pocket so the fabric for the wives dresses was uh it was as easy and to to put together as possible and how really wanted to go with that sexy look so mm-hmm. when the women first saw the costumes as, as sheer as they were they intentionally came with their biggest uh, granny panties and bras they could find, and they refused to wear them until mom added that extra red strip. Mm-hmm. For a little <laughs> uh, modesty, yeah. Yeah, a modesty strip. <laughs> uh, but all the artwork, the master's painting, the cauldron of fire out by the pit, all of that, all the cans on the sculpt on the mantle, it's all my dad's artwork. And all of it was pretty much existing artwork because he was in his hand phase at that time. So, you know. It, it certainly looked as if it was of that time, like cutting edge, a little avant-garde of, of that period of time. Yes. That's why I knew that there was care taken with this movie. Do you know anything about the jazz artist who put together the music? Because once again, that certainly was, um, I, I looked a little research. It doesn't look like he has any other recording recorded music, but certainly, I mean, there was a lot of effort put in the music. Yeah. Russ Huddleston created the music and uh, he was very talented around El Paso. He did things for the theater. I think he, I think he might may have worked at UTEP. I'm I can't I'm not sure. Yes. But uh oh did he? Okay, yeah. Go miners. He played he played uh yeah. He played uh one of the local lounges. He's like a, a lounge musician and he okay. wrote music. And that's where we got uh Nikki Mathis as well, who sang Forgetting You and Love Inside This Magic Circle. Uh, she was a local singer, and she worked with him a lot, and she also worked in the theater at times. 
And we were able to find her and get her to recreate Forgetting You for our sequel film, Monos Returns. And that was really wonderful. She did such a great job. But um, it was fun talking to her, too, about Love Inside This Magic Circle. It was so crazy, such a crazy song. that uh, And she wasn't given any warning. She had no time to rehearse or... She didn't really know what she was walking into, and and she said it wasn't in a key that was comfortable to her. So she just did the best she could. But it it's like that in itself makes it really special because it gives you that really kind of uncomfortable feeling. Mm-hmm. The music is, I think, just about yeah, it's the best part of the whole film. That and the props and costumes. So, so and the, the dog, of course. That was our family dog, the Doberman. Right. Not the poodle. Not the poodle. <laughs> Poor poodle. Poor flat, dead, <laughs> stuffed poodle. <laughs> so, <Happy>. so the, <laughs> this movie was lost for this long period of time. It was picked up, and it was just perfect for um, riffing or the comedy that, that comes with discovering a movie that just kind of misses its mark by a little bit. So tell us about um, what you remember about the resurgence. So you, you you performed as an actor, and then later on, that, now you're writing a book. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it was, uh, well, it was 27 years later. It was January 1993. I was living in Northern California. My dad had moved to Western Oregon. He was living in Lincoln City, Oregon, uh, working as a handyman at that time. And uh he was a mystery science theater fan, just kind of lounging in his easy chair on a rainy January afternoon, watching Comedy Central and dozing off and on. And he heard some strangely familiar music, the Torgo theme. And he opened his eyes and saw himself. And so he just sat there in just absolute fascination watching the whole thing. And then he called me on the phone when it was over. So, you know, those are the days things weren't recorded. You couldn't go back and watch anything. But we did have Comedy Central. So I I turned it on. I called that 800 number that was in the corner. No, I mean, this is a Sunday afternoon, as I recall. And I didn't know what was going to happen. But a real person answered the phone. And he identified himself as Matthew and said he was currently in the HBO downtown offices in Manhattan. And I said, you just showed a movie I've been looking for my whole life. And I had. I, as soon as I got out of high school, I started calling university film libraries. This is before Internet. Mm-hmm. And I just started trying to find it, but I couldn't. And I had given up. So now I'm like 30 years old, married with a child, and there it is. So I said, you just showed a movie my whole family was part of. Is there any way I can get a copy? And he says, well, what was the name of it? And I told him, and I was shaking. And there's this long, long pause, and I thought, well, maybe we got disconnected or he hung up on me and I have to get the courage to call again, you know, and he blurts out, oh, my God, are you Debbie? 
that's the most shocking. I mean, that's the very first inclination I got that anybody besides me cared about this thing. And then it became an instant hit on Mystery Science Theater, a fan favorite, like instantly. And we have really embraced you as a part of the Mystery Science Theater community. And, and your family is a part of our family of this discussion. How did your dad feel about that? He got a chance to see this being a success of sorts at that point. He did. And he always enjoyed it. My dad has had a great sense of humor. In fact, I just saw a picture of him in a homemade Halloween costume from the early 80s where he's being kind of a, I don't know, like a superhero. And uh, so I'm going to scan that and post that on the fan pages for Halloween here. Uh, I don't know how many mustached superheroes there are. Well, he's wearing, he's actually wearing, a, a, well, you'd have to see it. He's, his face is covered. <laughs> okay. Look forward uh, to seeing that. Your your Facebook page, you've got a you've got a pretty good following on your Jackie Name and Jones fan page on Facebook. So we look forward to all of those memories that you keep finding. Well, look up uh, just about six months ago. I got some help from uh, Ryan Labresh. He lives in uh, London, Ontario, but he's managing the new Monos the Fans of Fate page. And it's both on Facebook and Instagram. And we have a lot of uh, fan involvement in that. We've got people sending in their cosplay images, you know, of uh, them as Torgo and the master and people's art. And it's just, God, the, the page has grown more than a thousand people in just a few months. So we'd love to have more people come because that's really the focus of everything monos. Well, well, I think you hit both demographics. I mean, you have Facebook for, let's just say a more mature uh, demographic, <laughs> and you also have Instagram for um, the young people. <laughs> you just have to get on TikTok for the really young people. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's amazing over the years, you know, all the family personal stories I hear from people, you know, adults that saw it when they were younger and now they're, they're introducing their kids to it. So there's this younger fan base. It's it's just really interesting. It just makes me smile whenever I see somebody in a master robe. I, I see that costume because it was so striking. That what your dad made with that robe, you've been making robes and selling them too, right? Yeah, I made some crazy commitment a few years ago. I decided because I my mother taught me how to sew. And uh, as soon as I could, I started making my own clothing in high school. Like, I was the first kid in my high school to have hip hugger uh, elephant stompers, if you even know what those are. Elephant stompers are like the really wide flared jeans. Okay. Yeah, like the really big ones. You were uh, really and, hip. And hip huggers. But I was the first one in El Paso in my class to have a pair because I made them myself. So master's robes, I decided I was going to make a hundred of them, signed and numbered, custom made to size. And uh, I recently finished number 60. 
Wow. That's so I can't believe I made that many. But um, the biggest one went to uh, the UK, and the guy was six foot eight. I sent one to Australia to a guy who was six foot six. Did you have to send it upside down because it was down under? No, backwards. He wears it backwards. The zipper. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and then uh, a woman in Georgia who's four foot eleven. So I I can say I've made them for just about every size human. And yeah. I make masters robes for dogs as well, and cats. I sent one to to someone who had one for her cat. So cute. So so for people who are not familiar with this robe. Think of it as um, it's black, mm-hmm. and there's two, I mean, they're almost person size hands that are in bright, bright red, mm-hmm. open and kind of closed in on each other. It's and quite it, a statement. And it's truly a striking mm-hmm. presence if you had it. And anyway, I see that your dog is in spirit for the holidays and in spirit for uh, this movie. Yes, I have. A, she's just a year old. Uh, she's a Chihuahua Dachshund mix, but her markings are just like a Doberman's. She's black with the little brown spots on her face and her chest. And uh, anyway, I named her after our family dog, Romanos. That dog's name was Shanka. And Shanka literally translates to dog. So <laughs> like Shanka the dog and Monos the hands just perfect. <laughs> but I named her I named her after after him in honor of him. So this M- multiple wives too. I mean it's a modern world. The dog has multiple wives. Of okay. course. They do they do dancing. It's very romantic. Sometimes they get together and they question <laughs> what uh what the leader does. My cat is two years old. So it's her big sister, Kitty, and uh, her name is Misty. I actually had the Mystery Science Theater fans Aww. help me name her. So her name is Misty, but she's big sister, Kitty, and I have thought about making her a robe. I mean, a wives' dress. <laughs> a wives' dress. <laughs> with the with the uh, the tool and the... And and the, the uh, one strip of red, just right. for a little <laughs> modesty. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I may do that. Yeah. So you've been producing more stories with Manos since the the fame of this film. Have you involved your family like your dad did? Oh yeah. Gosh, we did Manos Returns, the sequel to Manos, and my dad was involved in that. He got to be in that and we also found Diane Marie, who was living in Colorado, who played my mom in the original. And we got her out here. Because of Monos, I've met other people in film. And I met a man, Patrick McGee, years ago. And he was the costume designer for Alien vs. Predator. And he also played the body inside the Predator. But then he created his own film, a Bigfoot film titled Primal Rage, which is really good. Look up Primal Rage. All right. um, but he wanted to film some of the Bigfoot scenes here where I live in Western Oregon because we're right up against the forest uh, in the logging community, an old logging community. So he flew his cast and crew out here and we did several scenes in my backyard. I had a 
14-foot hand-painted teepee. So we set the teepee up in the backyard. Um, my husband played the medicine man because he's Native American. And I got to play the woman being uh, doctored on in a peyote ceremony. And my, my sons were in it. Their wives and a couple of my grandchildren were part of the people gathered around outside the teepee before the ceremony. And then my son, my older son was the drummer. So yeah, I got my whole family into awesome. that film. It wasn't a monostone, but that was very cool. That's that's so wonderful. I, I produce musicals at the middle school level, and I just love involving people in something that may not be wonderful, but it's wonderful for us. The, the moment that you were able to capture with your dad, making this movie, with your family, making other movies, those memories are forever. And I just, I, I love that. I mean, even in Monos Might Returns, uh, my ex-husband was on the crew in the background. Yeah, I try to involve people in everything I can. I mean, the whole thing with my dad was we were estranged for many years. His wife just didn't like me. Hmm. And uh, we ended up living in the same small town of a thousand people here in Western Oregon. And we're not allowed to get together. Yeah. The whole way we get together was, <laughs> if you can imagine the master, he drove a little yellow Volkswagen bug. <laughs> that was his last car. So it was very easy to see. So if I'd see him at the grocery store or something, that's how we would get together. And then when Mono started taking off and people started asking me to be involved in projects and we came up with different things, um, for some reason, that was the thing that she allowed us to get together on. And we got together on mutual territory of a good friend's house. And uh, I just kept making up new monos projects. I used to say, you know, and I'm a person, I say yes to just about anything. I've done some pretty bad projects besides <laughs> monos. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I... I can say it, it really is a family movie because it gave us this opportunity to have time together and for my dad to be able to see his own grandchildren more often. And, you know, it, it means a lot to me. Like you said, it's family. And mm -hmm. the time I grew up in the, going to high school in the seventies, um, a lot of people don't know this group, but Fire Science Theater was a comedy oh, group on And my best friend and I, we we loved it so much. We memorized like every album and we drove people nuts <laughs> running off Fire Science Theater skits at school. And I did the same thing with Monty Python. That was our that was our <laughs> skit that we kept reiterating on stage at school was Monty Python. But yes, uh, Fire Science Theater is a part of my comedy heritage for sure. There you go. And and that's Mystery Science Theater as well. It's the same mentality, you know, it's it's uh really intelligent, fun, loving, nerdy, you know, it's just they're I always say it's my tribe. And then all these monos productions, there's been four stage productions. There's 
Manos, the Hands of Felt, you know, the puppet theater. Right. Books, comic books, movies, all kinds of things. So uh, now I've termed it the Monosverse. Nice. <laughs> well, I mean, with the MCU, everything's got to be a, a universe, yeah. right? So I, I just want to mention this. Your idea of or your statement of finding your tribe is one of the things that we have talked about for years here that you don't have to, you know, for people to love life, they don't have to enjoy everything that any individual may enjoy. But as you get older, you can find more and more people that enjoy the things that you enjoy. And if you're going to find joy in life, that is going to be where, where you find your tribe. And you, that's why I showed you Manos, the Hands of Fate yesterday, my friend. Well, that's called torture, Steve. <laughs> Yeah, that's a tough one. That's a tough one. <laughs> you know, I'm just wondering, did you get through the whole thing in one shot? Did you have to go take shots or did you? There was there was a little time travel in there. Um... He fell asleep <laughs> about 30 minutes in after his statement, 20 minutes in. Some, is something going to happen, he says? And I, I said, no. I mean, There's a twist at the end. Don't miss it. Eight minutes driving scene. Yeah. Uh, the, the thrilling driving scenes absolutely right uh, 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 so one of the other things that you've been doing is is art you've been painting with a group from dumb industries tell us about that yeah i've been doing online painting classes it started off as once monthly mystery science theater themed classes so like we've done mothra and godzilla and gamera um one of my favorites is uh What's it? It came from outer space. Uh, I think. Oh, and horror at Party Beach. The hot. That was my favorite. Poster. Yeah, and it's so we've been doing this for about fifteen months, maybe more. Wow. Now. But then uh, I've been doing the paint and sit parties in person at bars and restaurants for about seven years, and so we added a second class during the month. So it's second and fourth Saturdays, and you don't have to watch live, but it's fun. And I teach an hour and a half class, so we do a second class a month that is non-MST related. Yeah, it's growing. It's just, it's so fun because it's something I never expected. I teach painting with acrylic on canvas, but since people are at home, they can paint or create any way they want. So I've had people paint on glass bottles, on rocks, uh, using iPads. Mary Jo Peel, she joined one of our classes, and she painted with crayon. <laughs> wow. So I love it. And you should check out the store at Dumb Industries, too, because uh, we started selling the art that I'm painting for the classes, the one that I'm using as the demonstration one and then the one that I paint. And, in the first month, we sold more than half of them. I'm just shocked. Nice. Uh, you mentioned the the master's robe with the hands. Well, there's all kinds of T-shirts on there, and uh, there's a skater dress. There's, <laughs> And then another piece of my art, I had recreated my dad's painting of the master and dog, and mm -hmm. I saw prints of that, but... I also did a commission piece for someone years ago of um, 
the master, uh, Frank Zappa as the master with the demon dog as his poodle. Uh, so now that's on t-shirts and I'm waiting for my own hoodie to show up. I can't wait to wear it and see how many people get it. You know, the mashup between Zappa and the master. That's phenomenal. And all of that you can find on Dumb Industries, dumb-industries.com, the schedule of all the painting classes and all that shop of all of those products are there for you, along with the release of the audiobook that is coming out on Tuesday. The Listen to Jackie Naaman Jones reading her memoir, Growing Up with Manos, The Hands of Fate, How I Was the Child Star of the Worst Movie Ever Made and Lived to Tell the Story. Jackie, thank you so much. This has been just wonderful thank you and i'm gonna say i'm gonna say it out loud so that i follow through but i've been talking to laura mazuka tubes who helped me get my book written and uh i'm working on a new book called growing old with monos the hands of fate and it's going to be all the stuff that's happened since the book because there's a lot we call it the rabbit hole it's Monos is truly a rabbit hole. It's amazing. It is amazing that this tiny production, this local production, has become such an important part of your life and, and my life and, and now Chip's life. Well, wouldn't yeah. everyone want a piece of their art, something mm -hmm. they've worked on, to have legs and to be an evergreen? To be proud of it, even if it is the worst movie ever made. <laughs> yeah. Well, like I always tell people, I was only six years old, so I was, I was just as much a victim as anybody. I'm not responsible, so, so I can have fun with this as much as anybody. That's that's, awesome. that's that's why we have therapy. It's phenomenal. <laughs> it's phenomenal that you have gotten to a positive part of that. Jackie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Scroll with it. Brings us to our scroll with it. I have had so much fun this weekend hanging out with you, going to all sorts of fun things, going to the dark arts market. And before you showed up, I went to WBEZ's Curious City and the Chicago Brewseum teaming up to share stories and clips about brew and beer and camaraderie in chicago in pop culture so wbez is our local npr uh station, station Steve. Yes. and uh, we'd like to break in to say that if you order right now you have a mug that's waiting for you patreon's a great place to support <laughs> support our show patreon.com too much scrolling we're, we're joking it's our pledge drive month that's right pledge drive. all month long everyone's pledging all right so uh, the bruseum is uh, uh, what it sounds like it's about beer, Steve. It's a beer museum. I have not been to the museum yet, but it is on my list of Chicago things that I think have been put together in a loving way to talk about the story of Chicago. Chicago? Through, through the lens, in this case, of beer. And that's what this presentation was. Mostly, it was the focus on the activities in the world's pubs, bars, taverns, and saloons. Not the beer itself, but the gathering the community what does it mean for a community to gather and have adventures together so uh, sam adams would say it, it could lead to revolution steve 
So I should put Jim Cook as our as our <laughs> opening for this. Remember when I went to go see Jim Cook and he, and he had a few beers too. And had the adventure of being in a community talking about life, talking about what it means to be an American, to be an adult, to be in the time and place where we're at. Well, taverns at one time were the community discussion areas mm -hmm. and um, I mean, churches would be to uh, coffee bars and stuff like that but really you know a place that people could go get beer um, the public house the public house we have the public house in Elgin and, and that's what I think of when I think of that idea is where do we gather where do we come together to talk we're not usually doing those types of talks now but if you were trying to get information out to the general public um, then these will be a great place to go and you would meet the who's who of everyone mm -hmm. and you would find like-minded people. You could spread um, ideas. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly in the Enlightenment was, was part of that. And uh, like I said, it, at times it could lead to revolution. Yeah. Um, and if, you know, what, what can I say? Um, in Chicago, uh, certainly, there is uh, above board and under, underground uh, version uh, of that with Prohibition playing a big part and be, Chicago being the distributor of a lot of products around the world, uh, and it's particularly in the United States, too. And also, you know, Malort. <laughs> there was no discussion of Malort in this conversation, Chip. You, were, uh, you would have been disappointed. You would have raised your hand and said, but what about Malort? Is this the, the worst thing that's ever happened to the alcohol industry? Steve, it's an aperitif. Um, <laughs> it's for your friends or your enemies. <laughs> this was so much fun. This was so much fun <laughs> looking at how film has represented this gathering over the years. So how is the culture of... of taverns and uh, public houses changed over the last 50 years in, in our area. I think that you you pointed it out. The idea of gathering and seeing the who's who is definitely different now than it was 50 years ago. I think back to my father, my grandfather, they certainly had their watering hole that that's where they went after work. I don't have that personally. Well, we've designed our cities that way now. Mm -hmm. So think about what it would take for you to go to the local watering hall. Um, you would have to walk, I don't know, 10 blocks mm -hmm. or more. And um, in Chicago, we had more localized, small corner pubs sure. that was the center of that culture. So I'm going to uh, also bring up the, 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 the brew houses. Think of the um, like what Oktoberfest is. Mm -hmm. um, what are we missing right now in society? We're missing connections. Um, because when you were shut down for two years, it changed everybody. Precisely. And whether you were in a school or you're in a church, or you're in um, some public area, we're, we're losing some of our community mores. And people kind of calling you out and kind of settling you down. And even the sense of community, it's like me versus everyone else. Yeah, That's kind of what those big, you know, um, tents that you go get your beer would, would kind of hold you on. You, your family may have gotten a table or something like there and where your table was, but everyone could be there and mm -hmm. you got the Oompa band playing. I'm just kind of using this as a, uh, a metaphor of the need for community because we just have lost some of the, um, the buy-in and particularly yeah. here in the American spirit. We, we live in magical, lovely times where healthcare is better than it's ever been. Most of us are not starving. 
Uh, most of us have heat and air conditioning. Um, why do we have large groups of people really struggling? Um, well, I, th I think that we're losing some of these things that bring us together. Th that's a reason why those federal holidays are kind of important because you've got your parades, you've got your, you know, uh, little things that you can do that kind of like, oh, every Thanksgiving, you know, everybody, everybody, you know, does a turkey mm -hmm. or whatever your thing is, you know, whether sweet potatoes and mashed potatoes and stuffing and stuff like that. By everyone f having a, a buy-in, um, it just shows you what our society kind of needs right now. We, we need to have an affirmation that even though your particular part in life may not be the most perfect or elegant or anything of that nature, that you are part of this grand, um, magical time. Yeah. I think traditions and rituals is, is a big part of this conversation of gathering and being a part of a community. And the, the local pub is, is not the same as it was a generation ago. And, and that was the fun discussion that we had. And I, I look forward to some of the other uh, NPR gathering events. This is this is my favorite thing is to go and be a part of the community. So let's bring up our next uh, subject, and that's the creative destruction of movie theaters, <laughs> and basically how uh, Taylor Swift and uh, soon to be Beyonce have uh, basically turned upside down a model that certainly may be of a previous generation. Yeah, that distribution model of how movies get into your local theater. Taylor Swift made a, a huge decision to how her movie was going to make it to your local theater, and the, the, the distribution model is being disrupted here. So let's just say that you uh, don't have a teenager or a young person in your household, and you really are struggling with this Taylor Swift person. Oh, so you have a blank space? <laughs> exactly. That is my only Taylor Swift joke. <laughs> so the Taylor Swift's Eras Tour was the place to be. And uh, I think my daughter has seen it three times. My son has gone twice. No, I'm talking about the, the, the concert. Oh, the actual concert. Yes. Okay. Like she went to Nashville, Wow. Chicago, and she, maybe another. She's a concert goer. That's what she loves. She loves the gathering of the concert. But it's not just that. It is beyond. The, if you had a young person who liked Taylor Swift, this was beyond an event. This was beyond going to your local um, concert place. This was on such a different scale. Okay. And so Taylor Swift certainly has built this and has this incredible following. And based on that, she decided, and she, she has upset so much of our market. So when Prince, let's go back to Prince, was saying that he was owned, he wrote slave on the side of his uh, cheek and changed to a symbol and all that other stuff, Warner Brothers was the uh, owner of his, I guess, catalog his work yeah and so he worked real hard for this taylor swift has changed that she got out of her contract mm -hmm. she is now re-releasing her previous albums under taylor's version mm -hmm. so if you want to license that music where at one time you had to share the royalties she has now created like i will not share the royalties of those previous but here here's my brand new uh recorded version of this album you can use my version mm -hmm. of it well it looks like that she and amc theaters a theater not a movie distributor right made a an arrangement and the arrangement was that taylor swift would produce 
a movie based on her concert tour, would distribute it through the entire, you don't have to be in an AMC theater, right? Um, but she would dictate what the ticket would be, mm-hmm. the ticket price would be, it's at 1989, and that is uh, a, a reference to her album. Well, also a very important year to her. Yeah. And they would share, now she gets 57% of the take of that. Wow. I'm sorry, of her company does. Wow. So they are basically circumventing um, the movie industry for this, and theaters are struggling right now. Mm-hmm. And this brought people to the theater. And we could see this. Uh, you know, Fathom Events um, has done special uh, events. We've had a, a few other companies kind of come out there doing this. But if you're going to create product and use the theater as your uh, presentation and theaters are looking for for people to come Mm -hmm. this certainly seems to be worthwhile because the previous um when working through the movie studios they're not as gentle as um with their with their what they want to take control the 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 question of control and who has control over this material she is certainly taking control of her material usually first um the first weekend is very very big Mm -hmm. and there's a huge drop off and with movie studios it is almost all of that would go back to the studio you know i don't have the exact amount but let's just go with that um, with with a little bit of liberty there, but at the um, the second and third weekend, there's just not the demand, and if it's a dud, then the theater is trying to to make money off that, and that's the reason why. But one of the reasons why your popcorn's twenty bucks, right? They they're trying to make those ends meet, uh, whatever way they can. And you know, if you like it, you can put a uh, ring on it, Steve. Beyonce's doing her uh, concert in December, and it's going to be under the same. That's under the same terms. Nice. I, I look forward to that. I enjoy the the concert film. And uh, I haven't seen Taylor Swift's concert film, but like I said, my son has gone twice and has enjoyed it both times. Steve, we've got other news uh, out there, and that's because, um, you know, there's some wars going on, and they may impact some other people. The news on the news, Google has cut dozens of jobs in their news division. Boy, oh boy, I don't, I don't know what the future of news looks like. So it's 40, 40 jobs were lost, and Google and Apple and, and Facebook, a lot of these companies have news divisions, mm-hmm. and what they're doing is they're putting them together so that you can read them. So they're taking from newspapers, and or news sources, and they are um, kind of aligning them for you so you can get like the top uh, the headlines. Uh, you can pay a service for that. Or you can watch it by themselves. But I think what is happening here is, imagine you're a tech company. Your reach is worldwide. Mm -hmm. And not everybody agrees with whatever the news source. Why do you want to become a target for some kind of situation? Read into it as you would like. Um, I think this is part of what's, what's driving this. And when I when you think of where Jeff Bezos came in from, Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon, came in and bought the Washington Post, mm-hmm. moved the Washington Post from a local, I mean, it's a worldwide newspaper, but truly focusing on Washington, and moved it to, I mean, not quite BuzzFeed, but let's just say more of a general audience, right? and tried to bring it up to the tech world. This is showing the, the challenge with that. Mm-hmm. I think back, and I... Um, since Google 
is so good at taking the ad revenue from a lot of these sources, um, they've left these new sources at a disadvantage. Um, and then to, you know, want to not take it, um, you know, want not to be a target. You know, it's one thing to, to go after the Washington Post or the New York Times or the Chicago Tribune or LA Times or something. Um, but, you know, basically they were taking, not advantage, but taking advantage of, you know, these, these news sources. Uh, going back to the, the Bezos part, Bezos should have almost set up a trust and disassociated himself from the trust saying, I want to fully fund the Washington Post because we need great journalism. We need yeah. journalism. That's what I think we are missing in so much of this conversation is is the opinion versus the journalism. And and we're already seeing the challenge of that. I mean, what did Musk purchase of Twitter show? You know, he allowed journalists to come in and review the records and it became very apparent that the US government and the tech companies were basically suppressing objective, uh, objectionable sources. So if, if you were a person who was credible and you questioned what the line was, um, you were being silenced hmm. by effectively being, um, you know, uh, it, it's there, but you have to search it out. And most people just, you know, are looking at their feeds and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And many people are getting their news from social media, which makes sure we recognize it's just propaganda at some point, whether whatever you believe. And it's the echo chamber of the algorithm showing you what it thinks you want to see and not showing you the opposite opinion. So going back to Bezos buying Washington Post a long time ago and wanting that to be his legacy, creating a, uh, a model where the revenue, I mean, sorry, the, the resources were available to create great journalism, um, you could easily see where you've created a divide. Amazon has no connection. And the connection with Bezos is not there. Bezos is not the CEO anymore of Amazon, but it doesn't really matter. Um, it would have allowed them to truly do the journalism that we need now to questioning our leaders. Um, and because, listen, it's very, it's very easy to recognize that a picture or a, a headline is not giving you the information that you need. And Google cutting these jobs is once again just you know what is it what are we saying these tech companies want the revenue but they just don't want to have the responsibility and they have just gutted what potentially is a source that you know that we need humans need mm -hmm. um, we have more information available to us right now but many of us are having very difficult time understanding what is propaganda versus what is actual news? It, dis discovering the truth, whatever the truth, the truth is out there. Is this where we cue the X-Files yes. uh, uh, theme? Yes. Speaking of X <laughs> and Elon Musk, Elon Musk is rolling out an idea of charging a fee to every user for using X. You know X, the formerly known as Twitter. Yeah, it's well, X is going to be changing at some point to something else, but I mean... He is testing a lot of stuff. One of the challenges with Twitter is was bots. Mm. Uh, bots can create a lot of propaganda, Steve. Sure. Uh, and they can share it, and it's just become a real issue. Now, he's rolling out a $1 annual fee. He has talked about it quite a bit on his 
Twitter feed, X feed, whatever you want to Where, call it. Where's Twitter? So he's going to roll out $1. So it's just basically a nuisance fee. Okay. And I say that with in lovingly saying it. And the idea is to try to stop the bots. You know, by having somebody come in and have to pay this little bit of money, you know, a nuisance fee, mm-hmm. um, will that create a situation where those bots go away because you would have to link a credit card to that? Right. And you can easily see how a particular group that's not happy with the United States or some other country could use propaganda to sway public opinion. Mm-hmm. So $1, New Zealand and Philippines are the uh, test market for that. The Philippines is a U.S. territory. New Zealand is a separate country. So it seems like that, you know, those are good places to, to test. Um, will it roll out to other things? Will it lead to higher annual subscription fees? What, does this mean Facebook gets to try this? You know, we don't know. I, I would I would say, looking at my crystal ball, I would say yes to all of those questions. But what we're quickly seeing with the streaming services like Netflix and Max and all that other stuff, as they raise fees, well, you can just cancel them. And then mm-hmm. you can rent a movie when you want to watch a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and so the five bucks you're renting for the movie or the dollar that you're renting for the movie, um, well, I'll just... Totally worth it. I, I don't have to pay the, the 15 to $20 a month. When I find material that I want, I'm willing to pay for it. It is valuable at that point. Paying a monthly subscription fee and not using that service is not valuable. Well, and th- this is the, the test. Mm-hmm. And once again, if you're content value goes up by eliminating the the bots mm-hmm. or the spamware or any number of things it may be worthwhile to create nuisances right um anyway this is just something to, to follow out there and uh i don't know humans uh find a way steve <laughs> life finds a way we always get back to jurassic park good that's right <laughs> and then the running and the screaming yeah 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 that's what do jeff goldblum <laughs> We want to thank Jackie Naaman Jones for coming in and talking to us about her her adventures in Manos, the Hands of Fate. The audiobook is coming out next week on Halloween. I look forward to listening to her talk about this even more. <laughs> I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. Yeah, but you got to get out of my house, man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back next week. We would love to hear from you. Give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-4104-TMS. Our website is toomuchscrolling.com. Our email is toomuchscrolling at gmail.com. We're on threads and x.com and Instagram and Facebook. We're on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and YouTube. And you can always ask your smart speaker to play the latest episode of Too Much Scrolling. I want to thank you again for listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'm Steve Fodor. I'm Autumn Chip <laughs> See you in the future. So we don't talk Oh, and when you go to your Halloween party, hashtag TMS Halloween. Let's see your costumes. <laughs>